This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer, Al Castle, back once again. Once again, without my co-host, uh, Dan Murphy, we had some availability issues um, this week, and we're, we'll be sure to get him back on um, on the very next episode. Uh, but it's just as well because we're going to have uh, another name that is synonymous with PWI and the family of magazines going way back. And we spoke for a really long time, so I don't know that there'd be a whole lot of time for me and uh, Dan to catch up on all current events. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Dave Rosenbaum. Uh, if you are a longtime fan of uh, PWI and the Stanley Weston magazines going back to uh, the 80s, uh, Dave was a real integral part um, of, of uh, those magazines, uh, really during kind of the glory days of uh, wrestling magazines. Uh, he's been on my wish list of, of uh, guests to have on here for a long, long time, and we we're finally able to get together with him. Uh, Dave wrote and edited for the magazines uh, from the 80s uh, right through the early 2000s. So he had uh, about as long a run as, as anybody, I think. And uh, more than that, he was instrumental in the uh, coverage of uh, some real hot button stories. And, and that's kind of how we connected was uh, after the Viceland documentary on Bruiser Brody, uh, Stu and I were talking uh, about it and he told me about how uh, Dave really handled um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated's coverage of uh, the Brody murder back in 1988. And um, uh, Stu remembered some inconsistencies uh, between the story that was told uh, by Viceland, and uh, what he remembers Dave reporting um, all those years ago. Uh, so he reconnected with Dave. Dave agreed to to come on, and uh, we spoke for about an hour uh, covering his recollection of the uh, Bruiser Brody uh, story, and um, in particular, his dealings with uh, Tony Atlas, which was really kind of the star witness, or should have been the star witness, as the only eyewitness uh, to the murder and also dealing with uh, authorities in Puerto Rico. So a fascinating discussion just on that topic, but uh, Dave and I also just chatted, as I love to do with, with some of these guys, uh, just about working in the uh, the Weston Magazine offices uh, here in near me in Rockville Center in the 80s and 90s, what the atmosphere was like. Um, and one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting talking to Dave was he, he is uh, open about um, of everybody uh, there at the magazine at the time. He probably was the least um, wrestling fan. He was the one who kind of maybe uh, it, it came naturally less to him than um, some of the other people at the magazines. And he talked about how that uh, affected his, his um, job working there. And, um, and you know, don't get me wrong, as he talks about, he grew to very much be a fan. But, but it's telling that he says, and, and you'll hear that since leaving the magazines, um, he... Uh, I, I think he said he hasn't watched a wrestling match in something like 16 years, and, and I kind of uh, quiz him on it, and uh, I believe him. <laughs> so uh, very interesting, he, you know, him having the perspective of somebody who is essentially um, kind of a straight-up uh, reporter um, working for a wrestling magazine and uh, handled some 
as very much as as a real reporter some of the bigger news stories uh, of the day. So a fascinating discussion. Um, you should definitely stay tuned uh, to listen to it. As I've talked about, I've, I very much want to incorporate uh, more and more some of the history of, of our magazines uh, here in, in the 40th year, or the 40th anniversary of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Um, we we had uh, Harry on in the last episode uh, from 80s WrestleCon. Uh, we've had many other names and, and uh, looking to work on many more. Any Eddie Elder remains at the top of my wish list. One day we'll connect with him. I keep on trading uh, text and emails. Uh, he's a hard guy to to pin down, but he he is my uh, the the great white whale. He's my Moby Dick, uh, and and one day we'll get him here uh, on the show. Uh, anyhow, uh, right now I want to tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It arrived in my mailbox yesterday. It is the August 2019. Uh, issue and on the cover it's Kofi Mania. This is our uh, issue looking back uh, covering WrestleMania, uh, a fun cover with some snapshots of WrestleMania 35. Uh, which I was lucky enough to attend in person. We've got Kofi Kingston and his kids celebrating. To me, that was really the highlight of uh, the whole event and probably the highlight of the year so far. Um, and uh, uh, we've got uh, Becky winning her titles, uh, Batista and Triple H going at it, and Seth winning the Universal title. Um, so kind of a collage cover. And inside, uh, as he does each year, Dan puts together the real winners and real losers of WrestleMania. And uh, I was going through it, and I just thought he did a fantastic job. I mean, he really um, sees the big picture of uh, so sometimes, again, kind of the, the consequences, the ramifications of a match extend far beyond the contestants in that match, sometimes even to other promotions. And uh, I think Dan really nailed it on um, uh, his picks of who the real winners and losers uh, were here. So that's always a fun feature. Uh, goes back, gosh, it's got to be more than 20 years. I remember reading about the real winners and losers uh, back when I was in high school, maybe even younger. So uh, check that out. Uh, we also have uh, in this issue the PWI poll where uh, Dan, reaching out to uh, readers of the magazine, compiles how many of them are. Uh, so it's 250 uh, PWI subscribers were polled, and uh, he's got a list of 50 of the hottest questions uh, on the wrestling business. Uh, and I'll just flip through it. I mean, you, you've got stuff as kind of uh, simple as who is uh, pound for bound, the, be the best male wrestler in the world. Um, Let's see, flipping through here. These are always fun. Who is the sexiest, sexiest woman in wrestling? Who is the sexiest man in wrestling? Who does the best promos? Um, and then stuff that's maybe a little uh, kind of uh, deeper thinking. Um, how long will AEW uh, last? And, and there's some news breaking uh, just as I record this about uh, their TV deal with TNT. So that's official. And I'm sure Dan and I will, will get a chance to talk about that on our next episode. Uh, what do you predict uh, will be the main event of WrestleMania 36? Um, who are the, who's the likeliest current WWE star to sign with AEW, and a lot so a lot of AEW related questions, uh, and and a lot more, a lot uh, dealing with kind of the state of the business. Um, will we see more of Shawn Michaels in the ring? So these are really fun. Um, definitely want to check that out. Also, I've got in here, uh, and we hope to bring you soon some audio of this. Uh, my interview with PCO, who had uh, certainly a big weekend. Over WrestleMania weekend, I talked to him just before that when he was part of um, the Big Madison Square Garden show with New Japan. And since then, um, if it hasn't happened already, I know he was challenging for the Ring of Honor uh, heavyweight title. Uh, so, you know, in, in this interview, we talk a lot about what his, his goals and dreams uh, uh, are in this latest chapter, which is really an inspirational story of a guy who, uh, past the age of 50, is having the run that, that he has 
Uh, there's really nothing like it. And um, he was very open and, and candid in talking about um, his drive and his journey to get where he is. Uh, so a fun discussion, and there's uh, lots more in this issue. So what you want to do is go to pwi-online.com. You can pick up the one issue. You could subscribe um, long-term for either the print edition or the digital edition. The digital edition comes uh, more quickly to your uh, your handheld device, your laptop, your phone, whatever uh, uh, device you want to use. It's customized for your device. Um, and in both cases, you get a big discount over the cover price if you subscribe. Uh, let's see. I always forget this, so it's worth me checking out the ad. It's always good to have the physical magazine in my hand. Uh, so you could get half off um, the, the newsstand price uh, or even more if you, you go further. You get 52% off the newsstand price if you go for 12 issues. So uh, definitely worth doing. Don't uh, uh, drive yourself nuts as I used to do looking for for stores that uh, carry pwi um just make sure that it comes to your your mailbox or uh, your inbox every issue that is um so uh, save yourself the hassle and save yourself some money uh subscribe at pwi-online.com um also want to uh, plug prowrestlingtees.com which is the place where you could pick up uh the official Pro Wrestling Illustrated t-shirt, um, you know, talking about our past, uh, many of, of the, the more memorable covers of uh, PWI in the 1980s featured some of the biggest stars of the sport wearing that that iconic red t-shirt with the white lettering, and it's back. Um, there's other styles available, different colors, and if you want to pick yours up, uh, the place to do that is prowrestlingtees.com. Uh, and what else? Yeah, please follow us on social media, on Twitter, at OfficialPWI. Uh, you can also find us uh, on Facebook. And sorry for the uh, the sound of the crinkling uh, pages, but this really is useful having this in front of me. Uh, the thing to do if you want to reach us is send us an email at pwi at kappapublishing.com with all your PWI uh, needs and questions. Um, that's the one place uh, to do it all. Uh, so that out of the way, uh, as I said, I had a lot of fun uh, doing this, and I don't want to waste any more time. Uh, let's hear from one of the legends of uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and uh, its sister magazines from the 80s, 90s, oh, into the 2000s, Dave Rosenbaum. Bruiser Brody's been in the news uh, as of late, and I think we're actually, this is the 30th anniversary uh, of his death. Uh, it might be even. Right, it was 88, wasn't it? 80, let's stop, I thought it was 88. It must have been, eight, it must have been 88 because oh, you're when right. Sue so, sent me the, um, he sent me the scans and they were from 88. Okay, so. So it must so be 31, it must years, be 31 yeah. years. Yeah, was it Oh my May? God. <laughs> I don't know. I can't believe it's 31 years ago. <laughs> right, so, and. Uh, oh my June, how old am I? <laughs> it was July, okay, July of uh, 88. Um. So, and, and obviously the, the new Viceland documentary series, which has been a lot of fun to watch, getting a, a lot of attention from wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans alike. Uh, one of the their more talked about episodes has been about the death of uh, Bruiser Brody. And um, I understand you were very involved in, in covering that. So maybe that's a good place uh, uh, to start here. Uh, so you, you touched on it. Does it feel like 31 years? Um, you know, it's funny because I haven't thought about Bruiser Brody until about a month ago when Stu asked me about, you know, the, the, uh, vice piece. So I really hadn't thought about it. So you know, I guess it's hard to believe because to, to, for me, 31 years is more than half a lifetime. So it's wow. hard to believe it's been 31 years. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, where were you uh, at the time? Were you guys working out of Rockville Center? Um, yeah, so I was in the Rockville Center office from 1986 to 90. And then I was working as a, I was working freelance out of my home from 1990. I think I wrote for the last time in like 2001. That late, okay. So uh, 1988, uh, again, a very different time. There, this wasn't something that was going to pop up in the internet or something like that. How do you get word about the the death of Bruce Brody? I think we must have found out from Bill. I mean, that's the only way we would have found out um, because you know we wouldn't have had any Puerto Rican papers or anything like that. So Bill must have told us, and you know, because Bill was, you know, Bill Apter was so, and still is, I know, is so we're so involved. He was really a lifeline to what was going on in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it must have been through Bill. Um, I'm not sure Bill ever expected us to take it in the direction that we took it in because that wasn't really the kind of thing we did. You know, that was really, that was real life. And wrestling, of course, was fantasy life. And here were the two kind of getting in the way of each other. Yeah. Um, was there some kind of meeting or discussion about how you handle this, you and some of the other riders, Stu? Because uh, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting, and, and um, the the Viceland series, I don't know, if they did another other episode on uh, Gino Hernandez, I don't know if you saw it, uh, but they had yeah. something that was sort of funny where they talked about that um, after the word got out that Gino uh, had died, uh, the the police department there uh, started getting tons of calls from world class fans saying that they should uh, investigate Chris Adams uh, because Gino had just blinded him, uh, right? So this speaks to to kind of the world that it was back then. So um, I think especially working for the wrestling magazines where where most of what you guys did uh, was kayfabe. Um, did you have to got you guys have to think kind of long and hard about how to address the tone of this um, and that you know this you know, this is real, essentially. Well, I think what was going on, you have to understand, here's the layout of the office, okay? So I'm, it's a long office, and Stu was on one side of the office, not too far from my desk, and Craig Peters is right next to me, and Bill was kind of like on the other side of the office. So you have Stu, who's kind of like really more of the journalist on one side, and then Bill, who's really the wrestling kayfabe guy on the other side. So it's like kind of like a... It's like when you asked if there was a meeting, it was kind of like it was we really didn't have meetings like that. You know, we were so close to each other that we were always going back and forth. There was really never any reason to have a formal meeting. So I think if I recall correctly, and as I say, it's been 31 years. Um, I think what happened was that there's me in the middle of the office and I had a journalism background also. And I think what might have happened was Stu asked me to look into it. And we really had no idea when we started looking into it if we'd get anything or even what we would do with it once we did get something. So it was kind of like, okay, let's see where this goes. You know, there's no obligation to print anything. Let's see what happens. Then, of course, we get Tony Atlas on the phone, which is entirely through Bill. You know, I mean, we don't get Tony Atlas on the phone. It's not for Bill after. And Tony just starts opening up. You know, he's just talking. I think I must have been on the phone that day with Tony for over, well over an hour. Was just you and, and Tony? Was, there, was, you know, he's, was Bill part of that conversation or was it just you and Tony? No, it was just me and Tony, you know, because, you know, we, did, we weren't on speakerphones. It was just me and Tony. I might have recorded it. I might not have. I probably did. Um, it was just me and Tony, and we were going, you know, he was, it was mostly him talking and telling me what happened. And uh, he basically told the whole story. And I think what I remember most about that was, first, how shaken he was, and second, how much he wanted to tell the story 
about what happened to Bruiser Brody, and I kind of like speak up for a guy who he considered his friend. So at that point, you know, Bruiser Brody was dead, and everyone knew it. So we could ignore it. And the way he died was not in a, you know, it's, it wasn't like when the Iron Sheik and Hacksaw Duggan got caught in the car together, you know, yeah. uh, the Jersey Turnpike, you know, you had to make up a story. Well, then these two are actual rivals anyway. So it wasn't like you, like, you know, it wasn't like you had to work around that whole why were they together thing. So there was really nothing to lose by, you know, printing the story. You know, it's like it was, it was, even though it was about a murder committed by one wrestler against another, there was really nothing controversial about it until Atlas decided not to testify. Yeah, yeah. So you watched the Viceland piece? Yes. How, how, and again, understanding it's 31 years, how close was the story that Tony gave on the Viceland uh, piece to what you remember him uh, saying to you? Story about what happened in the locker room. Okay, what happened in the shower is pretty much the story he told me. Okay, mm-hmm. and obviously and his, his memory was a, a lot. You would think his recollection was a lot fresher back then than than all these years later. Right, but I'm going to have to guess it's something you never forget. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that, like, even if you look back at my stories that I wrote back then and I looked at them, um, it's pretty his 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 account of what happened in the locker room pretty much matches what he said 31 years ago. Um, I think where the problem, see the problem with the Viceland piece, it's, I mean, I don't want a hack job, but it's very one-sided because here's the key issue here is to me is, was Tony Atlas subpoenaed? Did he receive the subpoena? And if he didn't receive the subpoena, did he ignore it? Or was he subpoenaed too late or was he not subpoenaed at all? Now, if you look back at my articles, and I remember this very clearly, the, the prosecuting attorney said they subpoenaed Tony Atlas, and Atlas never showed up. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, now, looking back at the story, what's interesting is that they subpoenaed Atlas in Texas. And between the time of the murder and, I guess, the time of the trial, Atlas had moved from, I believe, from Texas to Maine. Mm-hmm. So the question is, did the subpoena get lost in the shuffle? Is it true that Atlas, you know, my, I, you don't want to accuse a person of, of lying or, but my impression was that when I spoke to Atlas after the trial, after Gonzalez was found not guilty and Atlas didn't testify. And the reason Gonzalez was found not guilty was because Atlas, the only eyewitness didn't testify. I remember on the phone, him being very nervous. Okay. And Maybe, I'm not sure ashamed is the word, but, you know, he started kayfaving me on a, on a, you know, here's a serious matter. And he started kayfaving me, asking me why I didn't want to talk about his, the ICW championship he had just won. <laughs> you know, is, as, as if that was a real thing, you know, as if he had actually won it through his athletic ability or something. You know, it's like, you know, what, I, you know, I, I you know, the, the, the quote I have in there is one I remember where he says, why don't you want to talk to me about your ICW championship? And, you know, I couldn't have said this in the in the magazine, but what I wanted to say was, well, because that's fake and this is real. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so you know, there's a, you know the the vice piece, from what I can tell, never really they never really attempted to speak to any of the prosecuting attorneys in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They never tried to get to the heart of whether um, Atlas was subpoenaed. I spoke to the DA on the phone, and he told me that Atlas was subpoenaed and didn't show up, and if he ever returned to Puerto Rico, he'd get arrested. Really? Why? I don't know what happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what he said. Now, I don't know if Atlas ever went back to Puerto Rico, and, and you know, if you had to ask me who I believe in this case, I believe the DA. Okay. I, I, I believe that the DA, I believe that the DA really did subpoena Atlas, that he got the subpoena, and for reasons, you know, it's it's kind of hard to criticize Atlas, you know, because, I mean, would any of us have gone back in that situation? He might have been murdered if he got, went back. You know, the DA said they would have protected him. Well, you know, it didn't do, doesn't do a lot of people much good, so... I mean, I think that, you know, understanding why Atlas wouldn't go back is one thing, okay? Because, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, you should have, but we don't have to go back there and maybe get killed, okay? But it's, you know, it's another thing for the vice piece to play him as a hero when there seemed to be like nothing heroic about any of his actions that day. I mean, what did he do? He picked up, he picked up Brody off the floor and he went into the hospital? I mean... You know, what is that? I mean, what yeah. is that? I'm not sure in what strange world that makes him a hero. So did you talk to him on uh, multiple occasions? Was there a conversation soon after um, you learn of the murder? And then another one, I, I guess it would be weeks or, or months later, when now the case is moving through the system. Uh, and, well, I guess by the time that, that he's found not guilty, some time had passed, right? Well, I mean, my, my memory might be a little off on this. I remember speaking to him twice. Okay. Once before, before the trial, after the murder happened, and then once again when Gonzalez, much to our shock, was found not guilty, and we called Atlas to find out, you know, what happened. Yeah. So, so that was the time when I spoke to Atlas and the DA. Um, Gonzalez's people never returned our phone calls. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know over the years, I think there's been this thought that, you know, the system was rigged, that kind of thing. Um, you talking to the, the Puerto Rican prosecutors, was your sense that they were uh, uh, serious in investigating this? And if Jose Gonzalez did do this, they wanted to nail him and and were let down that um, Tony didn't uh, cooperate? Yes. I got the impression that they were let down. Now, of course, the guy could have been lying to me. You know, he is a DA, though, you know, I guess it's possible. I mean, I don't really know Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican justice system. You know, it's part of the United States. Um, I don't don't know. I mean, he he acted like he did. You know, this is really a he said, she said here. You know, it's like, well, he said, he said in this case. You know, that one side says they subpoenaed him. The other side says he never got the subpoena. You know, it's kind of like getting summoned for jury duty. (laughs) You know, you can say he never got it. Right. And who's to prove otherwise? You know, one of those things. So... We have no proof either way, but I guess my objection with the piece is that it takes Atlas's side without even trying to present what might be the other side. I think what Atlas which said... Is he might have been, which is that he might have been cowardly. Right. I think what Atlas said in, in the documentary, um, or was this Dutch, that he did get the subpoena but got it like uh, 11 days late after uh, the trial was already finished. So I think there was acknowledgement, um, and again, I may, maybe I'm confusing this with what Dutch said. Uh, but I remember no, that was Dutch. That was he, Dutch. He got it, but got it too late, and and Tony yeah, said he never got it. Okay. Um, so Tony this, said never got it, which is possible because he moved. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's a different time. I mean, I guess now there'd be so many more uh, ways to try to get a hold of someone. But back then, uh, yeah, you called their home number. And if they weren't there, you weren't getting them. Right. Um, right. It's that simple. Uh, so so one of the things I think is so fascinating is, again, knowing the, the history of these magazines and, and even in my time with the magazines, um, certainly early on, a lot of our work was creative as well, right? In terms of, of real hard-hitting journalism and, and, you know, making calls and chasing down leads and that kind of thing. There, there are not a whole lot of stories, um, at least back then, where you had to do this. So no. uh, how, how did you approach this? I mean, was it clear to you that, all right, it's time to really kind of put on my journalism hat here and, and do some uh, real reporting? Did it come naturally uh, to you? Well, it came naturally to me because it's what I had done and I enjoyed doing it. I mean, obviously, I didn't enjoy what the story was about, but I enjoyed having the opportunity to do it. And Craig was all in, you know, on you, know, you had to, you still had to be careful, you know, because, you know, we still had to, you know, we still had to kayfabe it just a little, but you had to be a little careful about it. So I remember Bill not being comfortable with it, but I also never remember Bill being saying, no, you can't do this. You know, I never remember him saying that. You know, that being said, you know, Tony Atlas wasn't exactly a gigantic star back then. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not exactly like you're alienating, you know, Ric Flair or somebody like that. You know, he's a minor, you know, he's a, he's a, a big player on the minor circuit. Yeah. So, but, so I remember Bill being uncomfortable, but I also never remember Bill getting in the way. You know, Bill was like that. You know, Bill was, you know, on the one hand, Bill was respectful of, you know, he protected the business, but on the other hand, he kind of, you know, he kind of respected, I think, our decisions or what we did, and um, he, he kind of had to, you know, that, that was good of him. You know, he, he didn't try to get in the way. Yeah, yeah, and as I understand it, I mean, he was the one guy who really was kind of the link to the wrestlers, right? I mean, you guys are, are working in the office, occasionally going uh, to matches, maybe uh, uh, make some phone calls to compile results, but in terms of um, that, that liaison to the actual wrestlers, it, it was Bill. And so he'd have reason to be more mindful about how any of these decisions affected his relationship with wrestlers and promoters, right? Right. No. And obviously it didn't hurt him, this, this story, or even a couple of other stories that we did, although there weren't many. Yeah. You know, there were maybe a handful, you know, that I can remember. Was, was there any concern about the political uh, ramifications of... Um, upsetting Puerto Rican promoters and understanding that they weren't a, a huge part of the magazines. Um, probably that, that era of Carlos Colon on the cover covered in, in blood. Uh, that was already a few years uh, or earlier than that. Right. So, so how important was the Puerto Rican wrestling scene to the magazines at the time? And, and was there concern about how this affects our, our relationship with the Colon family and uh, uh, the promotion there and our coverage of them? Well, I think you're right. It, it was past their prime. So I don't think, I don't remember there being a lot of concern about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you touched on it, that, that there were other stories uh, that, that required a similar approach. Or were these all uh, Brody-related? Or, or can you remember other times where, again, you had to take this kind of hard uh, news journalism approach to, you know, a magazine that, that otherwise was you know, covering uh, stuff that was kind of lighthearted and fun? Well, there was about Eric's family, sure, and they were, yeah. you know, in addition to the family problems, they also posed a problem for us, you know, and, um, you know, and it was just, I mean, it was just, it was heartbreaking. It was just incredible, you know, you're just watching, 
know, during the eighties, you just watch one after another, you know, either die by natural, you know, either die or commit suicide or whatever. And it's just, it's just incredible. And I, I remember, I can remember a story I didn't want to do. Not that I didn't want, not that I refused to do it, but I just knew how uncomfortable it was. I think it must've been Stu. Who asked, I, I think this might, might've been after the, was Mike the last one who died? I'm not Carrie, sure I remember. Carrie was the last one to die. It was Carrie. Yeah. It might have been after Carrie died. And I spoke, he asked me to speak to Mike on the phone, not Mike, uh, Kevin on the phone, and do a pretty long piece about my conversation with Kevin. And I remember, now I can't tell you the details of that conversation, but I can tell you that it was one of the oddest, eeriest, most uncomfortable conversations I've ever had. Because here's a, here's a guy whose brothers had all just died. I think he was the last one left. And we were trying to talk about his brothers. I was asking about his brothers and about his feelings, about you know where he stood in the whole picture. About, And I remember that even though we were talking about a thing that must have been so heartbreaking for him, or I would assume was so heartbreaking for him, he couldn't stop case-aiding. Yeah. You know, he just couldn't stop talking about his brother's accomplishments in the ring and this and that. He just refused to get out of character and actually speak to me like a human being, mm-hmm. as opposed to a you know a, as opposed to a character. Yeah. And although I could not tell you the exact details of that conversation, I'd have to look back in my column. I can tell you that it was just so odd that even when talking about something that was should have been so important to him, that he couldn't stop kayfaving. Yeah, that's fascinating, and, and it does speak to uh, the time, right, that uh, the business was so protected that even when dealing with something so tragic and, and so real, um, they they still had to, to keep up that facade, right? Wow. Um, did you see right. the, the yeah. Von Erich's Viceland piece? It might be the best one of, of no, the I didn't. series. No, I, I should watch it. I should yeah. watch it. Yeah. They, you know, it. To me, I've always been amazed that no one's ever tried to make a major movie about them yeah, because it's just incredible here. what happened to them. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think uh, that's the appeal of, of all these uh, Viceland documentaries, and I think there's about a half dozen of them, a dozen of them so far. And uh, you know, I've been watching them with my wife, who's who's not really a fan, and uh, she's been getting into all of them. And these are all new to her. I think wrestling fans, not that they're jaded, but but these are stories that we've been familiar with for for years and and decades, and they're just kind of part of the folklore of pro wrestling. But somebody coming at this new, I mean, a, a story about. Of uh, a, a family of of wrestling brothers, uh, five of, five of them wrestling altogether. There were six at one time when uh, the little guy um, died when he was six. But that you could go from six brothers to uh, one. I mean, just fascinating. I think uh, also the case with with uh, Brody, and uh, I was watching the Gino Hernandez uh, one yesterday, which is probably of all these stories the one I'm I'm least familiar with because I was pretty young at the time and uh, yeah. up in New York, so wasn't following. Um, the, the Texas wrestling scene uh, as much, and yeah, it's fascinating as well. Were you with the magazines when Chino Hernandez died? No, I think that was just after. Uh, that was just before I came to the magazines. So I wasn't, you know, before I came to the magazines, I wasn't really, I had been a big wrestling fan when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I kind of like dropped out of it for a while, and then when I got back to the magazines, I kind of like started getting into it again. So I kind of was not really paying attention at that time. That's interesting, and, and and when I've talked to uh, a lot of the guys from back then, and and I would say I've talked to Stu, and uh, Craig, and uh, uh, Bob uh, Smith recently, and I'm always interested in, in finding out, you know, who was the wrestling fan, 
um, who was, uh, you know, maybe not so much a fan and, and more an aspiring writer. And then obviously had some that were both. So it's, so how did you come into this? You, you, it sounds like you were a fan as a kid, but by the time uh, you came with the magazines, were you just kind of looking for a job in, in journalism? Well, you know, yeah, I, I, I was a fan as a kid. Um, you know, I can remember, I can remember, uh, remember, I think it was the Grand Wizard of Wrestling blowing his nose on Vince McMahon's tie. I think it was the Grand Wizard. <laughs> It's like you know those old those old uh, Saturday night shows sure. and uh, on TV and you know so I was I was very into it you know I even went you know to matches and then I kind of dropped out of it um, and then I guess around eighty six or so I saw there was a, an ad and I answered the ad and sure enough it was for this and I'd already worked there a couple of years earlier in the um, I was doing some photo filing you know for Dill. Um, so I'd actually worked it a couple of years earlier. So I, this was actually, so when, when I answered the ad, I didn't know what it was for and it turned out to be this. So they brought me on, cause, you know, so I had the writing background and I had enough wrestling background to figure it out pretty quickly. And, you know, in all honesty, you know, it's like, if you can write and you have yeah. even, and if you have some creativity, it's, you know, knowledge of wrestling is not essential. You can pick that up pretty quickly. You know, it's not, it's not brain surgery. Yeah. So, you know, so I, so I got on board and it was like, you know, and, and once you're in the office, you're just immersed in it, mm-hmm. you know, and every day, Bill, is, you know, we had this file uh, that Bill would go into every day and update with news and what was going on, you know, so you always knew what was going on. And of course, you know, there was the sheets and there was, you know, we used to get tapes all the time from the independents, you know, we'd sit down and watch like six hours. I, I forgot who it was. It might've even been, um, oh my goodness. <clears throat> Now I'm going blank. The announcer on uh, anyway, Jim Ross. Okay. I think Jim Ross had like a six or seven hour roundup uh, once a week somewhere, like somewhere in the south. That we, I might be remembering this wrong, but we watched like six hours worth of independent wrestling tapes. So it was pretty easy to stay in the loop, you know, and get up to date. So, you know, it was you know even though it was before the age of the internet, we were pretty well connected. Would you say you were um, the the least real wrestling fan in the office there um would would yeah probably so yeah probably so but i found enough to like about it that it wasn't you know i found enough to like about it that i enjoyed it you know so you know and it was such a creative environment you know and um you know there's still things i you know as far as a writer that you know craig peters is you know is maybe the best editor i've ever had Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, Craig was a great editor. And, you know, there was such a, you know, there was that journalism creative. I mean, the people there could really write, you know. So I would say, yes, I was probably the person who liked wrestling the least. And probably throughout my time there really never got to, never got to love it, but mm-hmm. enjoyed certain aspects of it enough. You know, I could always find things to like, you know, I could always find things to keep me interested. So was it more a, a chore for you to sit through six hours of wrestling and, you know, maybe on a weekend have to go to a, a, a live show than some of the other people in the office who maybe if they weren't doing that, uh, did, were writing for Wrestling Magazine for a living would be doing it anyway just because they were such fans? Well, as far as watching those tapes, yeah, I think watching six hours of anything can get yeah. a little tough. <laughs> you know, you try to watch where it breaks. As far as going to live shows... I would bet you that in the entire time I was at the magazines, I probably didn't go to more than a dozen live shows. Really? Wow. Okay. You no, know, we watched we watched everything on tape. Mm-hmm. You know, we got tapes of everything. There was really no reason. 
You know, and also remember, this was in the day when the World Rescue Federation and and the Western magazines were not on good terms. Yeah. You know, I, you know, the week, you know, they, their wrestlers wouldn't talk to us. They would not give us any advance notice that anything was going on. I can remember, this was odd. They had a wrestle, they had a, it might've been Hogan Andre, but I'm not sure. It could have been though, because it was in New York City. They had a pre-WrestleMania press conference at um, the Rainbow Room in New York City. Mm-hmm. And of course, we weren't invited. But we knew there were a lot of people there that we wanted to talk to. And, of course, you know, we did the, P- we did the PWI interview. And when we did it with World Wrestling Federation wrestlers and personalities, we couldn't make them up. You know, we had to actually speak to them. And we actually had to get them on. But there was no way of doing that. So we decided that I would try to sneak into the World Wrestling Federation pre-WrestleMania press conference at the Rainbow Room. Okay. And, and sure enough, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, sure enough, I did sneak in, and they never questioned me. And I got full-length interviews with a couple, several people, including Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. And I would imagine that months later, the World Wrestling Federation must have been shocked when they picked up our magazine and saw full-length interviews with Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon that they probably hadn't even realized were taking place. Did Did you have to lie about who you represented, or did they just never ask? Nobody ever asked. Okay. You know, I got to tell you, Al, it's one of those things that it's like you say to yourself, did that really happen or was that a dream? <laughs> you know, and now, no, sure enough, the evidence is out there that that really happened. And, uh, you know, we just did these things, you know, and if we got thrown out, we got thrown out. What was going to happen? But we were there the whole time and we interviewed the wrestlers and we asked them questions. And, you know, we were able to use, I mean, we got, we were, had enough real quotes and they had to use for quite a long time. Yeah. So that was, wow. see, that's, that was, the, that was part of the fun part. Yeah. Yeah, you know when, when you that, guys that was about, definitely part of the fun part. When, when you talk about watching uh, tapes, and I hear about this a lot, and and so paint paint a picture of how that works. So, is there like a central TV in in the office with the, the VCR? Are there several? Is there a special room that you would go to, like a a viewing room or something? Is it a small TV? Is it a big TV? Um, no, no. There was kind of like a viewing. You know, it, it was a it was a small room that right next to uh, Stu's desk. You know, had windows on it, and uh, there'd be a TV and a VCR in there. And, and, and the, rest, the writers in the the writers in the office were me, Bob, and uh, Andy Rodriguez. Right. You know, so we would like, you know, I would pretty much we we would watch these tapes. You know, we'd take turns watching them, or we'd all watch them eventually. You know, you, you really didn't have to watch every match, you know, because there were yeah. some minor matches that were completely irrelevant. But yeah, you'd go in there and you'd uh, watch the tapes. Yeah. That sounds like, uh, at its best, I mean, it can be tedious also, but kind of a fun atmosphere watching wrestling with a bunch of guys. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, it was fun. You know, it's like, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think me and Andy had similar taste in uh, what we thought was, see, Andy and I kind of liked the aspect of wrestling that was funny. Mm-hmm. You know, while I think Bob was more into the, uh, I think Bob was appreciated the more athletic side of it, you know, um, you know, Andy and I, our favorite wrestlers were the Honky Tonk Man. And what does that tell you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, whose favorite wrestler is the Honky Tonk Man? It's like, but yeah, us. Yeah. I mean, I remember going down to the uh, Slammies in Las Vegas, in Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. And Andy and I just sitting there, just like holding our stomachs, just busting your gut, watching the Honky Tonk Man perform. <laughs> it's like, so, like, so we like, we like, I, I always liked the campy aspect of wrestling. Yeah. You know, um, and I appreciated that Rick Steamboat and Rick Flair could go an hour and a half 
but I'm glad I didn't have to sit there for an hour and a half watching it. <laughs> so somewhere along the way, and it's not to to understate how much you you know weren't a fan, but did you find yourself really becoming a fan? I mean, to the point that even when when you left the magazine business all those years later, uh, do you still watch? Kind of stay tuned to to what's going on, that <clears throat> kind of thing, or or was it just a job and and whether it's years later after you left the magazines or even when you were there at the end of the day and, and you punch out, you would leave it all behind and not want to hear about wrestling. See, I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like it was just a job because I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed my time there, and I enjoyed the writing quite a bit because of the creative aspect of it. It was fun. I mean, you just went into this fantasy land, and you got to be Matt Brock, and I loved being Matt Brock. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I just love being Matt Brock and being and just deciding once. where Matt Brock was going to be, go next, and what was going to happen in his life. And, yeah. you know, it was just so much fun to be Matt Brock. I could have been Matt Brock forever. <laughs> you know, and that was so much fun. I mean, there was so much, many fun aspects of this job. Now, to answer your question, I have not watched a wrestling match in 16, 17 years. Really? Really? No interest even? Yeah. I, I mean, I imagine you got to stumble upon it, right? I mean, flipping through the channels. Yeah, but you know what? I got to tell you, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm with Stu on this one. You know, it's like one face top case saving. I lost interest. You know? Really? Okay. No. No, thank you. I liked it. I liked it the way it was. You know, it was fun. You know, it was, and now it's, I, I don't find it to be as much fun because, you know, like Stu said, I, I would have case saved forever. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I absolutely agree with I absolutely agree with Stu on that. So you were still with the magazines, at least doing some freelance stuff when it kind of changed into this era, right? When you talk about the early two thousands, that's already a pretty big departure from you know the honky tonk man and and that eighties kind of rock and wrestling. So were you already kind of souring on it toward the end of of your run with the magazines? Yeah, because it, it started to be more, you know, it started to be you know more of a reporting thing. And less than a fantasy creative having fun with the thing. Now, even though I, I know the magazine tried to walk that line for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, there was definitely that transition. Because, I, I, like you said, I started in 86. And I think I stopped in 2001. But, you know, like characters like Matt Brock, they were still allowed to go wherever they wanted. You know, he still did whatever he wanted. And, mm-hmm. you know, wrote it. You know, so... Um, so yeah, there was a, it's not like it is now though, you know, and uh, I mean, I can't even imagine how it is now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, you're talking the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars and ECW, um, so that that's a pretty big uh, change from from maybe what you came up on uh, early in your, your magazine days. Um, do, you, do you remember... Uh, the the birth of the internet and the internet wrestling community and um you know i, I know you touched on the, the sheets were always around but but they got i think a new audience a new exposure um in in the late 90s and early 2000s in, in part because of the internet uh do you remember thinking about wow this this really spells trouble for us this you know our our heyday uh is really over that kind of thing well, I think I think it's you know it's it's basically the way everyone is Every, you know any magazine or newspapers have to deal with it the same way. Magazines even worse, you know, because these days unless you're in a major city, it's it's hard to even find a place that sells magazines. Yeah, you know, unless you walk into Walmart or Target or whatever. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I think it's probably. I mean, I got to give 
I got to give PWI credit for <laughs> still being around. That's yeah. impressive. You know, it's yeah. really it's impressive that they're still around in an era where nobody else is. You know, they're pretty much the last people standing, and that's you know. And now it's like I think we've reached an era where the Meltzers are the kings, if, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um. What do you so when you left the magazines did did or, so you were full time until they left Rockville Center and moved to Pennsylvania. No, I wasn't. I was full-time from 86 to 90. Okay. I think they left Rockville Center a couple of years later. I'm not sure. Um, I think but was I, was still, I was still doing as much writing outside the office as I was doing inside the office. That, I mean, if not more. I was still doing – I mean, I was primarily, even though I was a – I think I was an assistant editor and associate editor, I was primarily, primarily a writer. I did not do a lot of editing. Mm-hmm. So when I left the office and started working from home, there wasn't really much change. You know, I was still doing the same thing or with the editing that we were doing PWI weekly at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I just bought a stack and I wrote, of those. And, uh, I, and, I pretty, and I pretty much wrote, and I pretty much wrote the entire weekly. Oh really? Bob you know, said it. Bob yeah, said he wrote the entire weekly. <laughs> well, we both did, I, I guess. you know, I think, you know, we both, uh, it, it I made, I'm not remembering, but we were both doing the weekly and, uh, yeah, it was uh, so we were still still in the weekly, so there was still um, there was still plenty of work to do, you know. And I was still doing uh, it was still a big portion of my work day. Also, at the time, um, once once they moved to Pennsylvania, they started doing a hockey magazine. Yeah, called Hockey Stars, and I was the editor of Hockey Stars. Oh, really? Wow. So I was responsible for all the content in Hockey Stars until, and I think it was around two thousand two thousand and one that. Hockey stars stopped publishing, and that was pretty much around the end for me. I think. Yeah, yeah, that workload must have been just insane because for for a while there, there must have been at least six different titles, uh, wrestling titles, right? That were uh, magazine titles that were oh my goodness all the time. So I imagine it was a constant deadline. I forgot. I think it was Harry Burkett who who told me. I don't know if he who he was talking about. Uh, I forget. But that it was not unusual for some writers to uh, knock out these features in twenty minutes. I mean, you sit down, you come up with something, you, you knock it out, and you move on to to the next one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Twenty minutes, a half hour, an hour at the most. You know, it it would all depend on how much research you had to do, um, or how much, or how real it was, or how long it was. Because you know, we had that we had that magazine for a while. I think it was called Wrestling '86. It was a full color magazine we did for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And um, that had much longer stories in it. Like that, uh, the stories in that magazine were like two or three times. They were kind of like magazine pieces, you know, like you would see in ESPN, the magazine, or something like that. So, yeah. Um, so those would take longer. But for the most part, yeah, you'd knock it out in uh, a half hour. So if you, you could conceivably knock out an entire issue in a day or two. Wow. And sometimes you did. Yeah, yeah. You know something that I that I just saw the other day that I wanted to ask one of you guys about, and I don't know how you how much involved uh, you were. Uh, the PWI hotline. Uh, what do you remember about that? Were, were you involved uh, at all in that? How did that work? Okay, so that's ve- that's a very vague memory. I remember coming into the city a couple of times. I remember seeing the place where we were doing it from. Um, I think if I'm not. Was Bill was Bill on their personality? I'm not know. sure. I, I never made I re- the call. No, I, I don't. I don't remember much about it. I know it didn't last very long. I don't think it did. So it was a but different place. Really yeah, you, so so you guys had to go somewhere like a studio or something to to record the hotline. No, we actually, I think we were we called into that place. I see. 
you know, and Bill really had Bill. Bill had the voice. I'm pretty sure. But I remember going there just to you know get the lay of the land. And I got to tell you, I'm sorry. I might my memory. No, it's fine. Maybe really... it's a, a question. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you guys yeah, really really like, were wearing uh, a lot. Of, I mean, everybody thinks about just the magazines, but but. Um, yeah, for a while it was the the weekly, and it sounds like that was a ton of work, and then the hotline for a little while, and then I was also talking still a little bit about merch because you know now we've got the uh, the PWI shirts back um, that that we're selling. Oh really? Um, yeah, yeah. The the old shirts, the red with the white logo uh, on it, and I think they're doing okay. Uh, but for a while there, it was frisbees and bumper stickers and and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and and wow, uh, I think it was basically you guys in the office stuffing envelopes with, with these things and, and sending them out. Do you remember anything from that? No, not at all. No, okay. I really don't. Do no. you remember uh, uh, much about the PWI 500's uh, origins? And uh, I think this is another one that, that Bob takes um, uh, credit or the blame, I, I should say, for, for, for putting together in its early days. But do you remember that coming up as an annual assignment and, and the workload that it would add for you guys? I think you're right, though. I, I, I'm pretty sure that Bob, Bob was the guy on that one. You know, Bob's knowledge of wrestling was far vaster than mine. You know, mm -hmm. he had a much better mind for it, a much better retention, and he also, you know, I guess he liked it a lot more. Um, I do know that the PWI 500 became something we did in the hockey magazine, was, which was, I think, the Hockey Stars 500, mm -hmm. where we tried to rank every play in the National Hockey League, and I did that. <laughs> and that was a chore. Yeah. So, you know, if that's a chore, and, you know, I can't imagine, and you're basing it on a league with 26 teams or 24 teams, you know, I can't imagine what a chore that must have been for Bob because there are all these tiny wrestling federations all over the place. Yeah. How do you keep track? Yeah. I, I'm just amazed that, they, that anyone could still do that. It's like, I can't believe there are still 500 wrestlers. <laughs> yeah, one thing that, that I think is so interesting about uh, that time, too, is, is you know, we still put together the 500, and it's still a lot of work, but but now it, it's so much easier to, to find stuff like, you know, win-loss records or, or, you know, there's these sites that, that uh, I think basically fans compile. There are these amazing databases. I, I can look up within seconds um, every match that, um, I don't know, Cody Rhodes has had, uh, probably in, in his career, including house shows and his win loss percentage, um, because there are people who are compiling this, but, but back then, wow. uh, I, as I understand it, I mean, it was a lot of just kind of working the phones, uh, hoping to hear from fans who attended some of these live shows and, and, uh, would be essentially, uh, on-site correspondence, and and one of the I, I saw one of the ads for the the PWI uh, weekly, and one of the things that I thought was was really amusing of the ad was um, one of the big selling points was uh, match results within five days, <laughs> and and it's just crazy that that was like this big selling point that like oh you're gonna know who won that match from a week ago, um, and, and oh yeah now obviously I mean it you'd be on Twitter you can know within seconds, uh, so. But we also remember, like back 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 then in the '80s and even in the early '90s, we were a little hesitant to publish match results because a federation would do the same show right. like seven, yeah. eight, ten times in a row yeah. with the same exact results. So we really were hesitant to publish results from all the shows because people would pretty much quickly catch on that they're doing the same show every night. Yeah, that's a good point. So I that was one of the reasons. That. that was one of the reasons we kind of like didn't publish as many results as we had because we didn't want to give that away. I, I re yeah, I remember that being kind of um, this revelation for me. 
uh, reading the the arena reports in the magazines, and th- there would be like uh, as much as possible uh, results of of different night house shows. And yeah, I remember seeing the exact same matches with the exact same finishes night after night after night. And I was already smartened up by, by that point, but I remember at least thinking like, even from a storyline standpoint, how would you explain? Ric Flair, you know, going for that that same illegal illegal object every night and getting busted every night and disqualified every night. It's like, wouldn't he smarten up at, at some point? Right. Yeah, and and beyond that, but you know what? Hey, but but you know what? We were doing people a favor back then, okay? Because if we had published those match results, okay, from every single show, we would have destroyed the fantasy. And we weren't in the business of destroying the fantasy, and they didn't want us to destroy the fantasy. They wanted people wanted to believe it was real, even though on, they knew on some level that it wasn't. You know, they didn't want to see behind the curtain. You know, I'll never forget. We went to um, I think it was the Great American Bash in Philadelphia. It was a Veteran Stadium, and it was the Rock and Roll Express against must have been the Road Warriors, and the Road Warriors had the title. It might have even been in the Philadelphia. It was in Philadelphia somewhere, and I remember the Rock and Roll Express beat the Road Warriors for the NWA Tag Team title. And there was a couple sitting like maybe 10 rows from the ring. And when the Rock and Roll Express won, they jumped up and down, and they were kissing like crazy. They were so excited. I thought walking up to them saying, you know, that wasn't real, (laughs) (laughs) what you're celebrating here, you know? But it's like, but that would have been so cruel. People didn't want to know that it was fake. Yeah. You know, of course, of course it was fake, but, you know, don't throw it. I mean, when you go to a show, you know, a Broadway show or a movie, you know it's not real, but you, you have such a, a desire to believe that it, it would have been cruel for us to, uh, you know, to break the fantasy. Well, you're assuming they didn't know, right? Uh, and and, and I, I think it's interesting, and I, and I, and I think this gets to... Um, uh, Obviously, I'm I'm a real fan uh, and and still watch it. I'd be watching it if I didn't write for the magazines. Uh, you less so now. I, I do think there's there's a difference in how you view uh, wrestling. And 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 granted, thirty something years, um, it was different. But uh, I I do think that there's this assumption, uh, and maybe it was even back then that fans who who lose themselves in it and enjoy it that much think it's real. And I don't know that they do. I mean, I think even back then. No. I, I... I think some of them might have. I, mean, I think most some people did. knew, yes. but why? But they want. But they want. But I don't think you have to think it's them. real to to lose yourself um, that way in it. And I'll still go to. Uh, I mean, I just went to WrestleMania um, uh, a, a few weeks ago, and when when Kofi Kingston pinned Daniel Bryan for the title, yeah, I was out of my seat, excited, and and not for a second okay, thinking, you know, oh, this isn't this is fake. Right. No. No. It's so easy to. It's so easy to suspend belief, and and it's fun. No, yeah. it's, it was fun. Yeah, um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I th- I, I think it's uh, yeah. You, wrestling is really uh, uh, unique that way in in that, um, yeah, and 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 I do think it's a hard thing for for non fans to um, to to watch from the outside and say. Uh, because I think any wrestling fan, even to this day, like one of the most like uh, annoying things you'll hear is the person, and, and it almost never happens anymore. I think it, it really is a different time. But every once in a while, you'll get the whole "you know it's fake" thing. And um, what, what's interesting is I, I think once upon a time, the the thought was that the the fans who were who were watching it, uh, and maybe rightfully so were the suckers, they were the marks, they were the ones um, who were being duped. 
but now, and again, it's so infrequent that you hear it, but, but when you hear a non-fan tell a fan, uh, you know it's fake, I think the one that looks worse in that situation is the person who feels the need to point it out. You know, it's like... Oh, yeah, no question about like it. Because they say, think right? they, they're on to something. You know, like, oh, you know what I've discovered? This isn't real. You know what Bill used to say? You know, like, the line is, is wrestling fixed? And Bill used to say, I didn't know it was broken. He wrote a book <laughs> called, called that. That's the name <laughs> of his book, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he used to say that all the time. It's like, Bill would be walking right in. I didn't know it was broken. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, you know, it is. It's ridiculous you know, to have to point that out to somebody. It's like, no, why? Why do that? What, was that something? I mean, if someone is sitting watching a movie, okay, mm-hmm. and they're crying at what's happening, you wouldn't say to them, you know, they're really just actors, not really <laughs> real people. No, who, would, yeah. who would do that? It's the same thing. You know, it's like, it's like when, you, when people used to say, uh, when people used to find out what we, that we used to make up quotes, okay, that we used to not interview the wrestlers and actually write their quotes, I used to try to, I would try to explain to them. I said, but why would you interview a, a person who doesn't exist? As yeah. long as you know the character and you know the way the character speaks, That's a good point. why waste their time and your time? As long as you stay in character, you're good. Yeah. So it's like, what would you be interviewing if you interviewed somebody? You don't interview, like, you wouldn't interview, uh, you wouldn't interview Jack Nicholson, not Jack Nicholson's character. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, so there was really no purpose to it. I, but I but I think it's interesting that that you had that observation at that show about that fan getting excited about was it the Road Warriors winning or the Rock and Roll Express winning? Um, were, were you uh, uh, never able to to fully get past that? I mean, did did, did that keep you from um, ever fully being invested as as a wrestling fan? The the nature of this whole thing. Were you not able to lose yourself in in a match? Um, I think sometimes I could, sometimes I couldn't. I mean, I kind of wanted to, and when I wanted to, I, I could when I wanted to. Mm-hmm. It was, it's kind of hard though to be so close to it. Yeah. And uh, I know I, I, I've said this about almost everything I've covered in my entire life, whether it's sports or whatever else, that the best way to start not liking something is to start knowing too much about it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that might be true of wrestling that, you know, it's like once that once you get behind the curtain, it kinda like like you know, like a like a magician, you don't want to know how the trick is done. Right. I mean right. you think about it, you're trying to figure it out, but you really don't want to know. Because if you knew it would ruin the whole thing. So you know, so I think that was the problem, you know, like once I got behind the curtain it was kind of hard to, you know, draw the curtain back shut. Yeah. Did did you feel there were advantages in um not being as much a fan as maybe some of the other people uh, in the magazine. I mean, being able to uh, keep it at a little more of a distance, maybe watch it with with more kind of a, a cynical eye than than some of the people who were just fans. No, probably not. It was probably a disadvantage, a disadvantage. If anything. But yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it was. It, I mean, I, I told you the Rock and Roll Express story, but uh, here's another thing. You know, it's like. You know, Bruno San Martino came up to the office in Rockwell Center a couple of times, so we met him a few times. And what struck me about Bruno San Martino was that he seemed to be 100% convinced that his, what was it, like six-year reign as world champion? Is that what it was? Uh, there was two, you know, but yeah, one was probably at least that. Yeah, the, whatever the one. He was completely convinced that his accomplishments were athletic. Mm-hmm. Okay. That it had nothing you know, that that he had actually achieved these things. That he had actually won this title, and had been. I mean, he actually saw. 
unless he was kayfaving me. <laughs> you know, he really, but, it, but this was in a regular situation. He really seemed to think that his, his titles were as real as a baseball team winning a World Series. You know, so I don't know if he was fooling himself or he was just, you know, but I think there's, you know, there's something to be proud of there on Bruno's side because, you know, you're not world champion for six years. You know, if you're world champion for six years, there's a good reason for it. They right. think you're a great draw. The people love you. There's a lot of good reasons why you're a world champion. Athletic ability probably isn't one of them, but he seemed to be more proud of the athletic side of things. But like I said, he might have been case saving me. Who knows? There's some of that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I do think that, uh, and I think there is a benefit to, to the point of view that, that you, you brought to it, be, because it, it is different than the hardcore. And again, I don't want to make too much of it. It's not that, that you weren't a fan, but but clearly you had a different mindset than the diehard fan, uh, uh, right? Yeah. And and uh, yeah, I think, I think that probably uh, made you, gave you a unique voice in the magazines, so... Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, anyway, uh, guess what you're up to uh, these days? Is now it's been what close to twenty years since you you've been with the magazines. What have you been doing with yourself the the last twenty years? Still writing, still editing. You know, doing a lot of you know this and that. Um, I uh, pretty much do a lot of everything, and um, really have never gotten out of the uh, writing and editing business. So still doing it, just doing it. You know, in different stages. Yeah. And and you're honest when you say you haven't watched a, a wrestling match in whatever it's been sixteen years. Have you even accidentally uh, stumbled upon one? Um, no. Um, my son was working for. Well, my my son does work for UFC. Oh wow! Okay, um, I'm a huge UFC. So fan. aware of that. Um, yeah, he's in, he's on the production side of things. Okay, so I'm aware of that. So I know who people are. Like you know, I've I know I mean, you know I have grandchildren, so I know who John Cena is. Yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, you can't not know who the Rock is. I mean, he's everywhere. <laughs> do you, so do I know, you know who guys people are, but may, it's fun. maybe a little. I mean, did you know who Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins and Daniel Bryan are, or are those names foreign to you? No, really, no wow. idea. Okay, so you're really out. No of it. idea. No. Yeah. Wow. Oh no, I, I'm completely out of it. You know, I. But but you know, that being said, you know, I've stopped watching other sports also. Like you know, I pretty much stopped watching football. Yeah. So I couldn't tell you. You know, I used to be a Giants fan, and the only Giant I know is Eli Manning. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. So I, yeah. I, you know, so I, you know, so I couldn't tell you. So I, it's not like you know, wrestling has been the only thing I stopped watching. You know, it's, you know, but um, you know, there's maybe it would have been different if maybe it would have been different if the seediest person in wrestling hadn't taken over the whole business. Okay. Meaning Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. No, maybe I would have had a different, but there was no way I was going to be supporting Vince McMahon. Yeah. So it's kind of like I was like, okay, well, I'm not. I kind of lose interest since he's the person who's in charge. But he was the person in, who was basically in charge when when you were with the magazines too. I mean, I understand at the time there was at least right. still some right, semblance right, right. of competition. Uh, but yeah. to get, can I ask you to to not not to drag this on too far, but to delve into that why you have that opinion of Vince McMahon? Not not that it's not an opinion um, that's shared with by a lot of people. Um, well, I think the whole steroid thing, there's no uh -huh. question that they've encouraged people to, uh, you know, damage themselves and damage their lives. The amount of wrestling deaths is out of proportion. Um, you know, I'm not particularly fond of Linda's politics. Uh -huh. Um, so, um, and I guess there was the World Wrestling Federation part of it that I, you know, of all the federations that could have survived, that wouldn't have been my choice. Yeah. You know, I, I like the NWA. 
WCW. I enjoyed that. You know, I didn't like AWA. It was a little too dry for my taste. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, it was maybe, maybe you know, it's, it, it's a weird thing to say, but maybe WWF was almost too carnival-like. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of liked, um, I, I kind of more appreciated, I liked the NWA's attempt, more, more concerted attempt to seem real. You know, like, and just like, you know, then while the World Wrestling Federation just pretty much at some point just stopped caring about whether you thought it was real or not. And that kind of me, to me, took a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I, I think, I think maybe the downfall was when, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe the jumping the shock point was when Hacksaw Duggan and uh, the Iron Sheik got caught in the car together in the Jersey Turnpike. Maybe that was it. But I don't, I don't even know what year that was. That was probably like 87, 88. So you were still at the magazines for, no, for a long time. So, so I'm that. wrong. So I'm wrong about yeah. that. Yeah. That, that was, that was a weird situation. You know, it's like, I can remember us sitting down in the meeting trying to figure out how we were going to explain that. Cause remember we're still in the heart of k back then. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, and it's like, well, how do we explain that they're both in the same car together? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, okay, forget, forget about what the charge was. We didn't want to talk about that. You know, it's like, what are they doing in the same car together? We had a hard, that was one that even, I, I can remember even the excuse we came up with just didn't, it didn't, it wouldn't, even if you were a person who, even those rock and roll express fans who were so <laughs> excited, I bet you they, I, I bet you they didn't buy our excuse. You know, it's like, there's no way. Yeah. What so, was the excuse for, for yeah. people who don't know? What what was the, the official story from you? If guys? I remember correctly, the excuse was something along the lines with it. They were both late for a show, and the World Wrestling Federation demanded that they drive down there together, even though they didn't want to. <laughs> Hating each other every second that they're on the road together. Yeah, sharing a car. Hating each other every second, yeah, which yeah. is great. You know, it's like it's, you know, but uh, yeah, so I think that's what the story was. But uh, yeah, so yeah. That, was, that was a little, that, that story was not fun. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why even go into it though? I mean, I wonder if it's the. Can you guys just ignore that altogether? Was it that big a story that needed to be addressed? It was out there. I mean, it was pretty much out there. I mean, I guess we could have ignored it. Yeah. But I mean, we probably pretty much did. I'm sure we didn't. We we didn't write entire columns about it. You yeah. know, I don't think. I think we pretty much mentioned it in Bill's, uh, you know, monthly roundup. You know, Bill had those monthly news roundups. Yeah. Uh, in all the magazines. So I think we mentioned it. It was kind of hard to not mention. I guess we could have. Yeah. You know, let's face it, we weren't Melsa. Right. <laughs> no, we didn't want to be Melsa. You yeah. know, and uh, so. Yeah. So uh, looking back, were your years there, do you look back on them uh, fondly? Was it just a, a, a small chapter in a, a larger career in, in writing and, and editing? Or um, uh, do you still identify yourself all these years later as that guy who used to write for the wrestling magazines? Um, very fondly. Yeah. You know, and um, <laughs> so fondly that I'm actually a little protective of the Matt Brock era. I think because, like, uh, someone somewhere wrote that somebody else wrote Matt Brock, and I was like, I felt like to scream to him, no, I wrote Matt Brock. Were you Matt primarily Brock for 14 Matt years. Brock? For 14 years, I was Matt Really? Because I, I know uh, at different times different people have, have written him. I, I got to write him uh, once. But was that essentially your assignment for, for all those years? Yeah, because I don't know who wrote Matt Brock before I got there. It might have been Eddie. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Eddie Elner? Yep. But I thought Eddie Elner wrote Liz Hunter, but he might have written both of them. Um, so then when I got there, I took over Matt Brock. It was just so much fun to write. I mean, he was just... Yeah, so I, I think I wrote Matt Brock for about 
maybe 14 years. Really? Wow. You know, and uh, yeah, and he was a lot of fun to write, you know, because he had, you know, because we started, um, you know, we started doing things like him. Like he actually had a girlfriend for a while. <laughs> and then he, I forgot why he gave up the girlfriend. Then he had a cancer scare for like a, a while. Then the cancer scare passed. And, um, you know, so it's like we kind of like tried to make a real person out of him. Mm-hmm. Even though he was the most stereotypical <laughs> character you could possibly have. You know, he was basically based on Ed Anger from Weekly World News. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well. So, uh, no, I mean, Craig and I used to just sit there. Just, yeah, and we actually had a Matt Brock file because we had to keep track of what Matt, what we've said about him, you know, cause you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to, um, write something that you knew was contrary to something he had written before. So you really had to keep track as if, you know, cause he was a real character. Wow. <laughs> that, yeah. That's an attention so, uh, detail yeah. that, that you don't get from WWE writing, uh, these days, much less uh, magazines. Oh no, 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 no. You had to, because it's like, you know, what's well, like, a, well, Matt did this now. And we would actually have discussions like, should Matt have a girlfriend? Is it okay for Matt to have, have a girlfriend? And I would say, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, they'll have, she'll be hard as nails too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she'll, she'll be tough too. And, uh, so, uh, no, Matt was, I, I think of all the things I wrote at PWI and those magazines, Matt was my favorite, but no, it's, it's all fond memories. Cause it was a great bunch of people, incredibly talented, you know, um, learned a lot. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was fun. You know, it was, uh, it was mostly fun. The, the writing was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's true about just about anything that, you know, it's like things start, things start to blend into each other after a while, you know, if you do it for too long, but the writing, the writing and the atmosphere, the creative atmosphere, I have only fond memories of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get to, to interview wrestlers uh, all the time here uh, for the magazine and, and for the podcast, but I, I so in uh, much enjoy uh, more talking to the, uh, the old magazine writers because um, it just sounds like a blast. I mean, I could I could put myself in that that office uh, at that time, and it just sounds like a, a fun kind of collegial vibe. A bunch of guys with different levels of interest uh, in in pro wrestling with this job that is is both part of the business, but also kind of on the outskirts of of the business. Um, and it, and yeah, I mean it. it it's this unique blend of writing fiction and, and nonfiction and breaking news journalism. Um, yeah, it just sounds like it was a blast. And how often can you be in a, an office where people are actually wrestling each other? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was it that Bill, the, <laughs> I mean, uh, the office you... champion or something? Uh, uh, that's Wasn't there an office wrestling belt or something? That's, yeah, that's you, what I heard. They, and I working... think, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think at yeah, some point I mean, really. Bill defended it on, on an ECW show or something. I forgot who told me that. Did he really? Yeah, I think Stu might have told me that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Dave, thank good. you so much. This was a, a real pleasure. Hopefully, we're able to do it again. Thanks, Al. It was good okay. talking to you. Have a good one. Bye.